Thank you very much to both of you. Um, we do have a few minutes for questions and we do have a roving mic. So if anybody wants to put their hand up. Speaking of Vet Compass, uh, I'm, it's a bit of a two-part question. I was unaware that there is a U.S. initiative, um, and my question has to do with the fact that we've struggled mightily with diagnostic codes in the U.S. The AHA code set, which was formulated, has been implemented in only one practice management system so far. Um, IDEX said they were implementing in Cornerstone, and yet that's only for new installs. So I'm quite curious about, I guess, how you got it done here, because it's just not working for us, and which, uh, who your collaborator is for Get Vet Compass in the U.S. and how they're doing that with our rather archaic and non-implemented diagnostic codes. Okay, so the the uh, first first, I guess, if I answer the second question first, our collaborators in the United States at the moment are to do with uh, reviewing data and and searching, so not actually. Um, implementing, um, if you like, a practice database searching from US practices. Um, that's for the future, and that's one of the things that we're very, very keen to be doing. We had a conversation some time ago about with AHA about the, the, um, the genesis of <coughs> the Venom codes versus the genesis of the AHA codes. They basically came from the original SNOMED database, and so Venom effectively would be a great-grandson of of Snowbed, I guess. We, we were using it at the RVC and basically what we ended up doing was was deciding we'd take the 80-20 rule, look at what we mainly had used and then Dave Broadbelt, one of my collaborators, and uh, had a number of PhD students who looked at how we might use those codes in general practice. So Venom is something that we would be very keen to collaborate with in anybody in the United States with a practice management system. How, how you use it, of course, is then... Um, going to be absolutely seminal to how it gets implemented, and I, I can't stress it enough. It's just got to be really straightforward, it's got to be simple, and it's got to be easy for people to do. I also want to stress that a lot of the Venom uh, information is fine, but we don't need it, and it's not necessary for using the data dumps that we get from general practice. That is written as a specific file transfer protocol for a particular practice management system, and that, if you like, cleans up um, and makes the data that comes in from that practice easily searchable for that practice or for researchers who are given permission to look at that data by that practice, part of which you do by simply participating in the Vet Compass program. I have both of the major collaborators in the audience with me, Dave Broadbelt and Dan O'Neill. Uh, Dan's giving a presentation tomorrow, um, and, and they obviously would be more than happy to answer questions as, as well at the breaks or through the conference. The lady at the back. Yep. Kristen Ryer, University of Bristol. Thanks very much. Great talk, Dave. And uh, just have a question. I like cows, and there are some people that like horses as well. So what's on the horizon for them? I like cows as well um, and, and horses. We, we, um, I guess the short answer is it's a stage development. And we decided that the first area that we were really particularly interested in doing and, and perhaps was going to be the most difficult, I, I, probably that's not right, but, but, but certainly the most difficult in terms of larger numbers, was going to be companion animals and small animals. We, we've just um, finished working on the venom codes for equine and we're hoping that that will get embedded into a number of the principal equine 
practice management systems such as Eclipse that will then allow that data to be collected in exactly the same way. Um, and farm animals are, are along the line. I guess the other thing about, to, to be fair, there's an awful lot of uh, data collection in a computerised and rational way in, in um, farm animal practice in terms of not necessarily individual animal disease but all of the productivity stuff. So again, we thought the need was greater in the companion animals. That's where, that's where we looked first and in, in deference to my colleague on the stage as well, that was where the money was. Okay, the lady here. I work as a vet at a medical faculty, so where animals are used as models for human beings. And uh, so I was triggered by what was on one of your slides, that aging in dogs may be used as a translational model for human beings. And uh, so can you elaborate a bit on it? Because veterinary patients may be much better animal models for humans than the induced animal models. I, I, I don't know that I can say anything other than I agree entirely. Um, I, 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 think, I think, actually, if I may, I think one of the things that, that has been a little bit disappointing is how slowly the medical profession have recognised what wonderful, wonderful opportunities there are for evaluation of um, an investigation of disease that is relevant across the species. I, I promised myself I would never use the phrase One Health again some, some time ago because just, it just gets so overused in so many ways. But comparative medicine is, is a fantastic opportunity for humans and animals and the collaboration. When we, when we first organised and got at the RVC a uh, home office licence that allowed us to do clinical research on client-owned animals... And I can, I can tell you it was a two-and-a-half-year and very, very painful process. And the people who live in the United Kingdom know about animal research and home office licences. But the, but the basic argument that we kept on saying was, we are taking unwell animals and trying to improve them. And you're all the time authorising licences for well animals that are made unwell and then look at how you can improve them. So in any criteria that you'd like to look at in terms of welfare and ethics, this has to be... This has to be a better process. And in specifically answering your question, we are fascinated, as are a number of our medical colleagues, with the, with the dog and the very, very clear data that came out of one of the very early Vet Compass studies that shows that the larger the dog, the shorter it lives. Everybody in general practice, probably everybody who knows has dogs, has sort of already known that. So this was one of those publications where some people might have said, well really, whatever it is, and Dan will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's for every 10 kilos in size enlargement, the animal's going to live roughly six months shorter period of time. So, so, so when you have a biological system that has that level of, if you like, phenotype heterogeneity within one species and is linked to clearly a variation in progressive or accelerated ageing, there are any number of extremely interesting possibilities. And it sort of beats the crap out of a mouse. Can I, I, will, I will talk just so I, I don't let him. I, in, in my world, in the world of osteoarthritis, you cannot use the example any clearer of both in the equine athlete, okay, that is wear and tear osteoarthritis that is what's seen in the human side, and what we see in the dog and in the cat. The cat's probably a whole different world, which would be quite interesting. The model potential out of that versus the induced model in the guinea pig, which continues to be used 
and the mouse models that are knockout mice are continued to use to look at the genetics behind it. If you look at the creational aspects of new therapies relative to those models that actually make it to approval by the FDA, it's fundamentally wrong. It's, that's the pipeline going from a tube that's about six inches in diameter down to a dropper. And so that, that these, this, these models are, are probably going to be the best way if, and I won't use that, other, that term either about a single health um, because I'm so frustrated on how it's hijacked and prostituted off into anything people want it to, to be for. But I, I think your, your point is well taken in that these are the models that, that should be used if you want to go down the road faster. It going together, so uh, move, moving vet, vet science and medical science together. So thank you very much. I have a question for Steve. Could you ask David whether or not Compass... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's really for David, obviously. Uh, it was really one of the... And it's, it's as much a comment as a question, and that is that, yeah, I want to know what the diagnosis... Well, I want to know what the epidemiology, you know, how many uh, cases... I'd quite like to know if they lived after it was diagnosed. But actually, what I really want to know is what they were treated with and what happened. And uh, I think both Sabsnet and... Vet Compass are are, are brilliant initiatives and I I support them entirely. But it always frustrates me how difficult it is to get that extra bit of information. So he didn't ask me, you just, you did, Mark. (laughs) So, I mean, uh, I I guess all I can say is we are doing that. I mean, we we have the capacity, because we're getting the data... Um, I guess really, if I could translate it, is can we do cohort studies with Vet Compass or Savsnet? And I and I, I'm not going to speak for Savsnet, not because, um, well, because I, I I don't run it, I don't know about it, but I can tell you and passionately that we can run cohort studies on Vet Compass any time we feel like it. Really, it's 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 not actually now anything to do with limitations of technicalities. It's really simply about how we choose to select the data and the time to follow. But but. That is the whole point, really, is we can take a number of different centres that might be managing patients either homogeneously within a centre or heterogeneously within a centre and follow those for a period of time because it is real-time data collection. So we've got that data. So does that mean we've got current, up-to-date antimicrobial antibiotic use data? Yeah. Because what we want to know is, oh, has it changed? Is antimicrobial stewardship changing in the UK? Uh, because that's a really powerful no, thing we that we need to be telling the medics sure. that we're on top of this. We couldn't tell you that two or three years ago because that's when we were collecting the data. But we were collecting and have been collecting the data in an increasing level for the numbers of years. So absolutely now we have. And in fact, we're publishing, we've got another two, two studies. Could someone give... Dr. Broadmelt, the microphone for one second, and he can do a far more eloquent job than I of answering that. Sorry. Uh, so we certainly are looking at antimicrobial use, and, and I can say also Sabsnet are too, because they're interested. Of, we are all interested. In, we have recently published on usage. Um, the challenge is perhaps looking at resistance, you know, so lab-related data. We're looking at how we can do that in the future. But usage, we have it's in the vet record from the summer. <laughs> 